Welcome to Deconstructing Yourself, the podcast for metamodern mutants interested in meditation, hardcore dharma, neuroscience, Mahamudra, Dzogchen, Tantra, non-duality, awakening, and much more. My name is Michael Taft, your host on the podcast, and in this episode I'm happy to be speaking once again with Ken McLeod. Ken McLeod began his study and practice of Buddhism in 1970 under the eminent Tibetan master Kalu Rinpoche. After completing two three-year retreats, Ken was appointed as resident teacher for Kalu Rinpoche's center in Los Angeles, California, where he developed innovative approaches to teaching and translation. After his teacher's death in 1989, Ken established Unfettered Mind, a place for those whose path lies outside established institutions. His published works include The Great Path of Awakening, Wake Up to Your Life, An Arrow to the Heart, Reflections on Silver River, and A Trackless Path. And now, without further ado, I give you the episode that I call Vajrayana as a Living Practice with Ken McLeod. Ken, welcome back to Deconstructing Yourself. Very nice to be with you again, Michael. You're taking on the vaunted status of a regular guest. Should I be afraid? (laughs) It's too late for that. (laughs) That bus has passed. So today, I think I just want to dive in here and ask you, last time we talked, you were working on the Vajrayana book that you've been working on for years, but you said you were like bringing it to a close. So I'm curious, where are you at with this new book? That was about a year ago, wasn't it? I think so, yeah. Okay. So I completed the first draft and was informed by one editor that I consulted with that it was a complete mess. (laughs) That's a good editor. Well, I'm not sure. She threw up her hands, literally, on a Zoom call and said, I have no idea what to do with this. And then said, I have no idea why there's all this stuff about prayer in it. And so I realized, this may not be the right editor. Uh, I see. But the feedback that it was a complete mess was extremely helpful. Yes. And then I got another piece of feedback from a colleague who suggested I move some things around, which basically involved a complete restructuring. So I started in and basically wrote a second draft, and almost all of the book was completely rewritten. Not all of it, but very, very large percentage, say 80%. How many words are we talking about here? 70,000, 70,000. Yeah. And now I've sent it out for review to a group of colleagues. I've also just finished going over it. And beginning in July, I'm going to start on the third draft, which I think will be the, not the final, final draft, but the book has got shape, it's got form, it's got flow. And I'm feeling actually pretty good about it after a lot of struggle. The second draft was A very difficult experience, I have to say. Uh, It was just very difficult. You know, having written a number of books, what comes up for me when you say that is, ooh, difficult in what way? Well, when I look back on it now, the only other experience which is comparable is the kind of thing that I've gone through when I've done purification practice. Ooh. 
And I had to revisit and work through an awful lot of issues from my training and practice. That was very painful. Yeah, painful, a lot of work. And it cleaned a lot of stuff out in me. I think mostly in a good way, but I'm not 100% sure yet. And I've actually come to a different take in some fairly important ways, a different take on Vajrayana, which I attempt to communicate in the book, but I have no idea how successful I am at that. The outcome of purification practice to me, though, is not only do you feel like maybe you're cleaned out, but also a new view, right? It's like the view has shifted. That's really interesting. Yeah, I'm actually still digesting it, frankly. I mean, to give you an example, I think spiritual practice is not about getting enlightened. It's about choosing a way to live. Mm. And in order to live, there's something in us that has intimations or has a sense that there's a different way to live, and we seek it. And often we don't really know what we're looking for. But as we pursue it, it becomes clear that some kind of profound letting go is necessary in order to live that way. And that letting go, I think, is what people have termed enlightenment. And in a way, that has become the goal than a different way of living, which is, I think, a little unfortunate, actually. That throws us right into the subject matter of our conversation, I think. It does. And yet I have some questions about what you just said. Well, fire away. When I was very deeply involved in Hindu Tantra practice, mm -hmm. a thing that was so interesting about it was that it's like a complete package. Not only are there practices and prayers and a whole what we would think of as religion there together with practices, but there's literature and there's community. But then on top of it, there's holidays, there's things to do every hour of the day. If you're really practicing it, there's something to do continuously. Yes. Back then, something that occurred to me is this is an entire lifestyle. It's a way to live. It's a whole, not only worldview, but like being in the world. And I'm curious if that's what you're talking about or something different than that. I think that's what it becomes. I think we're talking about something pretty similar. Mm -hmm. Tibetan Vajrayana was derived from Buddhist Tantra in India. Yeah. And Buddhist Tantra in India was probably practiced in a way that was pretty similar to the Hindu Tantra that you were practicing. As I work more and more with Vajrayana, it's extremely familiar to me. Yeah. Some of the philosophy and formulations and things may be different. Certainly the practices are different. And because I think it's fair to say you were involved in a tradition that had continued in India in an unbroken way for, what, 2,000 years approximately? At least, yeah. Yeah. So you're embedded in a whole culture. And Tibetan Vajrayana is a little different because it consists of two slices of Indian culture one from the 8th century and one from the 11th century. That's the Nyingma, the old school, and then the new schools, the Kaju, Sakya, Kadam schools, the new translation schools. But those two slices of practices and philosophy and texts and so forth 
that became the basis, the raw material of Tibetan Vajrayana tradition. See, just right there, there's a huge difference, if you see what I mean. Yes. Yeah. And then that became evolved in Tibet in a society which was more akin to European society before the Reformation. Sort of like medieval Europe. I would say what's commonly referred to as the Dark Ages, which wasn't really nearly as dark as people have made out. <laughs> and that's really a serious misnomer. But it's where Catholicism provided an overarching view and encompassed every aspect of life in the way that you just described with the Hindu Tantra, right? Yeah. And so that was the way in Tibet. And the monasteries were one of the main sources of power. In medieval Europe, you had the king, the church, and the aristocracy. In Tibet, you just had the aristocracy and the church. The king wasn't very effective. Yeah. But everything else is rather similar, and it's why a lot of Catholics or people with Catholic backgrounds have a much easier time relating to Tibetan Buddhism than people from other religious backgrounds. Another of the understandings that I came to in the course of wrestling with this book is that our relationship with the shamanic, our sorcery, you know, wizards, magic, all of that stuff, whatever you want to call it, with prayer, all of these different aspects of religion in their earlier forms and in the later forms and so forth, has been terribly broken up by modernism, industrialism, various ideologies, and very significant events, such as the Reformation and all the very, very bloody wars that followed that. So we come at this rather fragmented, if you understand what I mean by that. Yes. And where all of this is going to go, I have no idea. But these are some of the things that made writing the book difficult, because how do you portray a complete immersion in a culture and practice to people in the culture who haven't experienced that kind of immersion? <laughs> yeah, it sounds really difficult to do. Well, you're going to be a judge of it if you have the time to, to look at the book. <laughs> oh, I, I, I can't wait. I definitely do. It's been a trip. <laughs> yeah, you know, there used to be, up until the Jesuits came around, there were all these living meditation lineages that had been going on for at least hundreds of years, and maybe a few of them almost a millennium. It wasn't the Jesuits. I thought that they were the ones who declared all that quietism and then did away with it. Well, that was one factor, but I'm not sure that it was the most important Certainly the Catholic Church, and I suppose the Jesuits, but you're talking about the Inquisition, I guess. They did not like quietism. They did not like people forming their own relationship with God. That may be a bit harsh, but anyway, and if I get strung up on your podcast for this, so be <laughs> then you won't get to read the book, Michael. But as a friend of mine pointed out to me, the two big culprits are Henry VIII in the 1500s? Yes. Yeah, that's right. 16th century. And then Emperor Joseph of Austria in the 18th century, I believe. When Henry VIII decided to separate from the church because Rome would not grant him his divorce, he and Thomas Cromwell separated the church in England from the Roman Catholic Church became the Episcopalian, but the way they did it is that they started dismantling the monasteries associated with all the villages 
in England. Mm -hmm. These were very small monasteries, maybe four or five monks, that had been part of those village lives for centuries. The church was not going to defend them because A, there were so many, and B, they were so small. And so he was able to clean up, and thus he obliterated from the English countryside the mystical traditions. Interesting. Then in the 18th century, when Joseph was upset with how the church was restricting his efforts to reform everything, he looked back in history, saw what Henry VIII had done, and he did the same thing through what was the Austrian Empire, the Austrian-Hungarian Empire. And that is why one of the factors, we have largely lost our relationship with mysticism because it was exterminated basically for political reasons. And then, as you noted yourself, the discomfort with Quietism, and whether that was the radical Protestant in the form of Quakerism or Madame Guignon, and others like that, even Meister Eckhart, all of these people, St. John of the Cross and so forth, that didn't help matters either. So we have a very, very disrupted relationship with our spiritual heritage. Yeah, it was essentially broken up on purpose over hundreds of years, and eventually very effectively, right? It's remarkable how well they were able to disrupt all that. They were able to disrupt it but they weren't able to extinguish it. Yeah. And I think that's important. It is important. And yet when all the lineages are broken and you can't even write the stuff down so that all of the knowledge about how to work in this way is largely lost, you have a situation where people are then hungry for the mystical. They're maybe even doing practices in that direction but it's really lost its way, right? It's lost the wisdom that it would come wrapped up in normally. A lot of how-to knowledge is lost because it can only be transmitted from person to person. You're yes. right. You cannot get it from a book. It doesn't matter how good the books are. No, it's one-to-one. -one. Yeah. But this is where we are, Michael. And this is why we're having this conversation, isn't it? That's right. This is one big difference. In the Tibetan tradition, you've still got intact lineages that have been going on for at least 800 or 1,000 years. Well, as David Chapman points out, I was in the last or the second last generation to receive training in the Tibetan tradition before it was impacted by modernism. Now it has been impacted by modernism, and it's not the same as it was. Mm -hmm. But my teacher grew up and practiced in Tibet, and I was fortunate enough, even though I could never rise to his level of abilities and understanding, but to have received training in that. And there's a film on Garchen Rinpoche, which I was just watching part of before we started this conversation. That's on Vimeo, if people are interested. And he also received that traditional training. He was born in Tibet in 1937. His training was massively disrupted by the Chinese invasion, but he still received a lot of it. But those kinds of teachers are increasingly rare now. And so we're in a different age, I think. And so you're discussing or describing this idea of a way of life. Mm -hmm. Is that a particular term in Tibetan or in Sanskrit that you're translating that way? 
It's a very interesting question. Yes and no. I think Buddhism has always described itself this way, but it's described it differently in different generations. And I think the first formulation of it was probably the Eightfold Path. Right, okay, I see. That is a description of a way of life. But in order to live that way of life, you have to let go of an awful lot. And that letting go, in basic Buddhist terms, of the sense of self is key to being able to live your life in the way described by the Eightfold Path. And in this sense, and this is my own personal opinion, and I'll get into whatever trouble I get into by saying this, I don't think the Eightfold Path is a path of practice. It's a way of life which you evolve to through practice, if you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. Then I think the second major formulation is probably the Bodhisattva Path. And that also involves a major letting go. And I'm speaking here, of course, from my training in the Tibetan tradition, where we see things in terms of these three turnings of the wheel. And the third one, I suppose, would be Tantra, or the, the Vajrayana, which again is a different way and involves, let's say, a different flavor of letting go, because it builds on the other two, but takes it in a slightly different direction, or quite a different direction in some ways. Quite a different direction, yeah. yeah. And uh, interestingly enough, have I mentioned a book called Debt the First 5,000 Years? You have to me privately, yeah. I know you really like this book. I haven't gotten around to reading it yet. Well, I do suggest it. It's by David Graeber, who died. He basically worked himself to death. And David Graeber, incidentally, was one of the prime movers behind the Occupy Wall Street movement. Oh. A very serious anthropologist, and quite insightful. But I'd heard about the book, and I went, and then I read an excerpt from it. And the excerpt said to me, you need to read this book. (laughs) (laughs) The reason I'm bringing this up, because I think it bears very much on what we're talking about as a way of life here. The excerpt describes an anthropologist who was studying, I'm not sure whether it was the Inuit people or some people in the very far north, whether it's Greenland or Canada, I'm not sure, I can't remember. But he joined in the society in order to understand it rather than just observe it. And he was participating in a walrus hunt. Now, a walrus hunt is not exactly the most exciting thing in the world. Basically, you stand for hours holding a harpoon above a hole in the ice, waiting for a walrus to poke through your hole so that you can spear him and hopefully bring him in, and that's your meat for the winter. (laughs) Anyway, he was unsuccessful. He did not manage to land a walrus. And he went back to his igloo, where he had very little to eat, and very little to eat the igloo with, you know, no tallow, nothing. And thought, this is going to be an interesting study, isn't it? Later that afternoon, one of the successful hunters came by in his dog sled and unloaded several hundred pounds of meat. And the anthropologist went out and thanked him. And the Inuit declined the thanks. And the anthropologist insisted on thanking him. And the Inuit got more and more angry and eventually exclaimed, We are human beings. With gifts we make slaves, with whips we make dogs. And the anthropologist desisted from 
thanking, just accepting the meat. And David Graeber makes the point, in these cultures, to be human meant that you did not calculate. If you were in need, you received, and if you had more, you gave. But it was not a calculation, and so no thanks was called for. That's a different way of living. And the thing that touches me so deeply about this is that you're free from the notion of transaction, this for that, which not only permeates our culture, but I see as influencing Buddhist culture from the inception of money. And it was this exploration of a particular term in Vajrayana that led me to appreciate that the transactional mindset had actually infiltrated or infected Buddhism a long time ago, but it still aspired to a way of life which was not about transaction. And what was the term? The Tibetan term is lamkir or lamdukirwa. It's usually translated as carry on the path. I've always found that translation unsatisfactory, and I've asked a number of people about it and thought about it literally for decades. Can you give me an example of where we would see this term? Like, how is it used? Oh, the term that I've come up to after much thought, and may not sound like it, is living practice. And this goes back to how you were describing your relationship with Hindu Tantra. Living practice, so suppose your practice is guru, union, okay? Uh, mm. Union with your teacher. Then you relate to the world as if the world is an expression of your teacher. That's how you live the practice. You with me? Yep. Okay. Now, the usual way, and the way I was guilty of talking about this term, is you use your life to deepen your spiritual practice, one way of thinking about it, or you use your practice to deal with difficulties in your life, another way. But if you look at that, both of those are transactional, if you see what I mean. They're also extremely common ways of talking about practice. That's right. And one of the things that confused me is that there's another Tibetan term, Bokdun, which is regarded as a synonym for carry on the path, which literally means to realize a profit. It's the word that's used for an investment. You realize the profit from the investment. You know, you cash out. Hold on. Make some profit, yeah. Well, that obviously represents the infiltration of an investment perspective. <laughs> and carry on the path doesn't have that idea, but we translate it into these transactional terms. And to discuss this whole aspect of teaching, well, that's one of the little trips that I went through in the last few months, <laughs> trying to figure out and what I came up with is living practice, and in which you are choosing a way to live. And that's how I got out of that transactional trap. Well, I like your translation because, of course, there's kind of two ways to hear it. Mm -hmm. You know, the practice itself is living, and you are living the practice. Yes. So it's definitely got some juice, and it does seem to take away the transactional vibe. How does this fit with your experience in Hindu Tantra, Michael? I'm not sure which Sanskrit term is being translated. I was kind of ruffling through my memory to see if I could come up with it, but I can't on the fly here. But in terms of how we work or how I was working at the time, the image that keeps coming up to me is it's just so particular. One day, as is so often the case in India, I was having some stomach issues. 
<laughs> and also some bad astrology, which of course is one of the things that we're always consulting in that way of life. Mm -hmm. And my teacher was a woman, Anandiman. She was maybe, I don't know, at that time, maybe like 35 or 37 or something. We happened to be in Mumbai that day. And she was like, oh, no problem. Come with me. And so she went into the kitchen and made these sugar balls with black sesame seeds in them. It's the kind of sugar, it's more like molasses, right? It's like yellow, lumpy sugar. I know the stuff, yeah. I can't remember what it's called, but I know that. Yeah. Yeah. And rolled it together with a bunch of black sesame seeds and did that. You know, that took a while. She was doing that for maybe an hour or something. And then we walked outside and she fed it to cows and ravens and so on. And she said, there, your stomach problems are gone. And went about the rest of the day. But it was just part of like everything else we did that day. It wasn't separate or special. It went together with making lunch and going shopping or having a teaching or meditating or whatever. We're just going to do this ritual that's totally built into everything that we did every day. Sympathetic magic, right? Sympathetic magic, and yet not somehow separate. Exactly. And she didn't want anything from me, and it wasn't like we were paying the crows. It just was, I don't know. <laughs> no, no, I, I get it, because the black sesame is often used as a symbol for disease. It's the symbol for bad karma, yeah, yeah. and disease-causing agents. Right. And so you wrap it up in a way that it can be digested, not necessarily by you, but by something. One way or another, it worked. But I think for me, it's not so much about the magic of the black sesame, but the fact that the way that she did that, it wasn't like, now we're going to do a magic ritual and we're going to set it apart in all these really special ways, which you can do sometimes. But this was just not any different than scrubbing the dishes after a meal. It was just built in. I've touched that kind of thing in the Tibetan tradition too, not quite to the same extent, but I, I get what you're talking about. It's just how you live. It's part of the way you live. Yeah. It's very difficult for us to do that because it's so absent from our culture that when we adopt it, there's always a performance component in it. Yeah, I tried to do it in the States for, I only made it for about three or four years where I tried to set up my life so I could keep that going. You can keep a tame in a zoo version of it going here, but it's performative and almost like atavistic. Its living root is not there. And so it becomes like a zombie version of it. Okay. Now this is a really, really important point that you've just identified. I think it was one of the factors that made writing this book so difficult. Because we have been cut off from that whole stream in our own culture, and yet, for some of us at least, there is a wish to recover or reproduce. or And you notice all of those words start with R-E rather than do or something like that. But I think it's something that has to evolve. And I'm not quite sure how it's going to do that. Right. And we've had several different waves or different methods. There's the sort of trying to get back to the shamanic thing where we're reinventing or just 
completely imagining from whole cloth, like something like Wicca, or we try to take it from other cultures. And that has so many problems. And then what people seem to end up doing, if they're even very serious about doing this, they end up cobbling together this Frankenstein monster. And it kind (laughs) of works. It might actually have some real life in it, but it's still not like embedded in a whole culture. It's always their own personal deal, which it just has a very different flavor. Yes, you're making me think of Shinto. A friend of mine has been studying Shinto the last little while, and it has the same function in Japanese society, that there is this magical element with the kamis. And when asked what a kami is, a Shinto priest or a practitioner will say, anything that inspires awe. It's really interesting. But there isn't a belief system. There isn't an ideology associated with Shinto. It is simply the performance of rituals according to the way that they're performed at that particular temple. And it varies from temple to temple. So there's no authority. I mean, some Shinto temples have much more influence than others because they've been around longer or they're bigger or whatever. But they're all respected. In fact, this friend sent me a interesting example. There was that nuclear reactor, the Fukushima, is it? Yes. Okay, so 40 different shrines had to be abandoned because they were all in territory which was radioactive. But they didn't want the kami to feel deserted, the spirits of each of the shrines. So it was arranged after consultation that they would set up a shrine and invite all of the kami to come into that one shrine that was in a safe territory and where they could all be honored appropriately. But they found that the Shinto priests weren't terribly enthusiastic about this solution. And when they talked with them, and this is the Japanese government talked with them, or maybe the company that owned the reactor, I can't remember the details. When they talked with them, they said, well, it, it sounds like we're asking the kami to abandon their shrines and come to this new one, and that's not going to work. So what they worked out as a compromise is they would ask the kami to take up temporary residence in the new shrine until the other shrines were restored. Just the hotel shrine? Yeah, something like that. But you can see that there was a way in Japanese culture to accommodate this aspect of life. We don't have that so much in our society. Yeah, and that's putting it mildly. Okay. So I'm curious, however, we've identified an issue in your own experience and practice, but also you were teaching for a very long time, so you know a lot about a lot of other people's practice. Have you seen Westerners really finding a way of life that has some of this resonance? Well, you're opening up another very big topic here. You know the extent to which most Western practitioners of Buddhism deny that Buddhism is a religion. Yes. Increasingly, I think this is a very serious problem because it militates against the kind of evolution that you just referred to. Yeah, I think it's an attempt to make it more accessible and turn down the fear level of getting involved and all that. And yet it seems completely false to me. It's obviously a religion. (laughs) Well, I want to dig a little deeper into that if it's okay with you. Yes. I'm guilty of that. Well, me too. I mean, I wrote a whole book about it that way. (laughs) I didn't know that. But in the introduction to Wake Up to Your Life, I say Buddhism is not a religion, it's a set of tools. What I didn't appreciate at the time, and this is why I think it's maybe worth going into, is that I was coming from a Protestant notion of religion. 
And from that point of view, okay, Buddhism isn't a Protestant kind of religion. That's fair. But I had a very narrow view of what a religion was. And I'm not quite sure why, but it broadened out very significantly in the 2000s. That's a whole another conversation we could have as to why that was the case, and I haven't really examined that. But I came to appreciate that, yeah, it's a religion. Actually, I think it's better to look at Buddhism as a group of religions yes, rather than a single religion. Really, uh, at least three of them. Yeah, mm, yeah at least three. <laughs> I could probably think of five without too much trouble mm. because Chinese Buddhism and Japanese Buddhism and Zen and Pure Land and, you know, you see what I mean. Yep. And I realized that in a certain way I've done some of my students a disservice by not developing the religious aspect more. I mean, it was difficult. America has a great tradition of everybody inventing their own religion. Since the very beginning. Since the very beginning. And it's what American society pushes you to do, regardless of what your religion is, in a certain sense. And I think one has to accept the fact that we're still early days, too, in this transmission. But now I really see that prayer is as important a component of practice as meditation is for many, if not, I would like to say most, but I'll just say many people. I have a friend in Croatia, I don't know whether you know him, um, Hokai? Hokai Sobal, yes. Yeah, who sometimes says he teaches people who pray how to meditate, and he teaches people who meditate how to pray. <laughs> but I find that the act of prayer provides an emotional expression which most people don't bring to bear in their meditation. Is there anything along these lines that you've noticed or experienced or are wrestling with in your own teaching? It's definitely a thing that I learned early on in Hindu Tantra. There's so much of that. Yes, of course. And it's such an important part of practice. And sometimes the line between prayer and meditation is blurred. Like when I would do a long retreat of some kind of recitation or whatever, that which am I doing there? You're getting into a very deep meditative state by reciting. It's a somewhat artificial distinction. Yeah, but I do see that many people who come to the practice or come to Buddhism or come to meditate find that idea entirely foreign or like, what are you talking about, or repellent. And furthermore, who are you praying to and who's doing any praying? And there's all kinds of stuff. And I'm okay with that. I'll teach them how to meditate without any of that. And yet, it really helps. This is one of the issues I had to deal with with this book. And the way I came to describe prayer is the essence of prayer is reaching out. It's not asking for something. It's reaching out to what you don't yet no. And so in a Vajrayana-type practice, the prayers I might think of are, for example, lineage prayers. And so I'm always intrigued. I don't know what term Dan Brown is translating, but when you do that, he translates it as asking for gift waves of influence. <laughs> uh -huh. Well, he's not wrong. I might offer a slightly different translation. How would you translate that? Well, let's break it down. There are many different kinds of prayer. Yes. And 
the prayer that you're referring to here, and I guess Dan Brown is referring to, is in Catholic jargon, supplication or petitionary. That's right which you're asking for something. But I want to take note of that because we need to qualify that quite importantly also. And that's very different from another kind of prayer, which is very common in the Tibetan tradition. I mean, I could probably name five or ten different kinds of prayers very quickly, but I don't want to spend all our time on that. But another one is aspiration. Mm -hmm. Now, if you take something like the four dharmas of Gampopa, you can translate it as... I ask for the energy, that's the waves of influence that Dan Brown is talking about. I ask for the energy for my mind to turn to the Dharma. Okay? Mm -hmm. That's the first one. I ask for energy for my practice to be successful, and so forth. But you could also put those as aspiration. May my mind turn to the Dharma. May my practice be successful. You follow? I do. It's quite a different mood. Well, I used to translate those prayers as aspirational prayers, and then I realized I was making a mistake. I think it was that was my Protestant background or my rebellion against my Protestant background. Because you are asking, and then the question is, who are you directing the prayer to? Well, I would prefer to say, what are you directing the prayer to? You're directing it to what you do not know. In directing the prayer to what you do not know, there is a necessary opening, if you understand mm -hmm. what I mean, okay? Mm -hmm. A vulnerability is... I'm going to avoid psychological jargon. I hate it. I'm yes. sorry. <laughs> is vulnerability a psychological term? In this context, yes, it's definitely. You feel vulnerable, etc. And vulnerable means you are able to be wounded. Yes. And that's the wrong connotation. And this is what I mean about a lot of terms that have come into Buddhism from psychology skew Buddhism into being a kind of psychotherapy or what have you, or self-help or whatever. But when you appeal to what you do not know, the first thing is you acknowledge you don't know it, and so it is other to you, okay? And you don't know what it is, but you're going to appeal to it anyway. And that requires an internal opening. And in that internal opening, you find what you are praying for. And do we have a term for this in English, that kind of prayer? I don't know. But that kind of prayer that Dan Brown's talking about, I practice. And I know, I know this experience. It doesn't come immediately. It comes through the practice of prayer so that you can stand in that openness and really be in it. That's not easy sometimes. It's really not easy. Really not easy. And when you attempt to write about that or translate it or talk about those kind of practices, how would you do that? I mean, you can't just call it prayer, right? Well, this is exactly what I've tried to write about. <laughs> you can see why I was having a little difficulty. Yes. Yeah. You and I seem to understand why this is so vital, but this is what I really want to convey, is this aspect of practice in Vajrayana. I can't remember whether I mentioned this in a previous conversation, but Union with your teacher is often regarded as the principle or the central practice of Vajrayana. You've probably heard that. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Same in any tantrism. And what is the principal method through which you join with the teacher's mind, or join your mind with the teacher's mind, however you want to put it? At least in Tibetan tradition, it's prayer. But, okay, how do you pray? And I'm not talking about how do you say the words, 
But we've lost that connection with that kind of standing raw and naked in that opening of your own heart. I'm quiet because even hearing you talk about it, it's profoundly affecting, and yet we don't have good vocabulary for that. Well, we aren't used to talking about it. It reminds me of the Hebrew from Hasidic Judaism where they talk about hit bodadut. You go out into the woods and just cry out to God and just open yourself up, and it has that mood of just complete, raw, naked opening. You're quite right. There's a genre of prayer in the Tibetan tradition called far-reaching cry. On my website, actually, there's a translation of one such prayer called Devotion Pierces the Heart. And after going through a long lineage, the author of this prayer goes through every conceivable shortcoming you can have. And you say, no, help me to get through this one. (laughs) Help me to get through this one. It's about eight or nine pages long. It's not a short prayer. No one on this earth has ever escaped death. Even now, one after another, people pass away. While I, too, will have to die soon, I close my heart and prepare to live for a long time. Guru, think of me. Look upon me quickly with compassion. Give me energy to stop useless planning. I hate my enemies, cling to friends, and befuddled about what to do or not do. When I practice, I am dull, sluggish, and sleepy. When I don't practice, my senses are clear and sharp. Guru, think of me, look upon me quickly with compassion. Give me energy to destroy my enemy emotional reactions. You get the drift? (laughs) Yeah, it's almost along the lines of, I'm such a sinner. Except it goes on for nine pages. <laughs> Death is certainly coming, but I can't take it to heart. The Holy Dharma is certainly helpful, but I can't practice it properly. Karma is certainly true, but I don't act appropriately. Attention is certainly necessary, but I'm swept away by distractions. Guru, think of me. Look upon me quickly with compassion. Give me energy to be constantly mindful. It's a little different take on mindfulness from what most people are being taught, right? Very different. Yeah. And do you feel like the mood of this prayer is the sort of self-flagellatory, you know, I'm such a sinner? No, I don't at all. Yeah. Not at all. Because, of course, it has that sort of sound in the language. But It has that sound to us because, and again, this touches on what we were going to discuss, the way Protestant attitudes towards religion have come into the practice of Buddhism. And so if that's not the mood, how would you describe what you see as the mood that's being inculcated here or expressed, I should say? Well, brutal self-honesty. And so we reveal all the flaws as clearly as possible. And even perhaps in the recitation of it, especially if it's a daily recitation, really look at those things. I think that's right. I mentioned earlier about this openness. Well, this is opening to our weaknesses. We have to be able to stand raw and naked there, too. And that's where things change. That's certainly my experience. Standing in that way or opening in that way is, I'm tempted to say the only way. It's probably not the only way, but it's certainly a powerful way to begin to experience something different. I don't know whether it's the only way. What I do know is the only way I trust. Well, at least what I've seen, it's for many people, 
certainly for me, after you try every other way <laughs> as hard as you can for a long time and with, let's say, very limited success, this is where you end up, the last resort. I agree with you, but I think there's something else too, because I know people who know their faults and can be quite honest about them, and it doesn't change them. So there's something else too, and I'm not quite sure what that is, so I'm asking you. Well, I think this is what I was trying to point at is it's not just the knowing the faults, it's the I've tried everything I can think of trying, and now I'm just going to open a window and just not know what to do next and just ask. So here's what I'm going to throw out as a possibility. I'm wondering if, coupled with this very raw acknowledgement and opening, and as you say, asking, there's also an intimation of another possibility. And I think that needs to be there. And another possibility along what line? Another possibility of another way of living, going back to what we were discussing earlier. Yes. Something like that. Someone once said, meaning comes from assuming responsibility. I'm just taking that in. It's certainly intriguing. Well, I said this to a Sufi friend of mine. She's quite a teacher. And she said, on the spiritual level, that means you assume the responsibility to see the world through the eyes of God. That really struck me. And I think that speaks to the quality that I'm trying to get at. It makes me think of the kind of mindfulness one might be pointed towards in an essence tradition, like continuous remembering to drop into Rigpa or something, whatever language we want to use there, and how different the world seems when you keep doing that. Because that's what comes up for me. It really feels like very resonant suddenly. I'd agree with that. It wouldn't naturally come to me to call that responsibility, but when you say that, I'm like, wow, there's a lot there. There's a really, really something juicy there. Yeah, and if you take that as your responsibility, as the way you want to live, then your life becomes very meaningful. Everything becomes very meaningful. Yeah, and in that way, it might not need all the liturgy and literature and ritual and performance and all that, because... In a way, that's all external anyway. Well, yes, but it's also means. And yet, if we need to create all those means by ourselves in the new cultural context or whatever, as we said, that's really, really difficult. Well, that's where it falls on people like me. Yes. Translation and writing. But I'm thinking primarily of translation. I mean, just the verse I read to you from this, I try to translate it so that people feel that it speaks their own voice. And that's one of the things that I find difficult about a lot of translations is they don't have that quality. There's always the fork in the road in translation. Are you going to try to say exactly what's being communicated or alternately the mood or feel of what's being communicated? So here's a beginning of a song. You know Tilopa and Naropa? Yes. So Naropa was studying with Tilopa and going through all kinds of hardships. And he was walking with his teacher, and they came to a very small stream. And Tilopa turned to Naropa and said, if I had a student, I wouldn't have to get my feet wet. So Naropa threw himself across the stream, making his body a bridge. And Tilopa started to walk across him 
And when he was standing on his back, he began to jump up and down and dance. Of course, this put Naropa to an extreme. And eventually one of his arms slipped. Talopa just got the tip of his sandal wet. <laughs> and immediately he jumped on the bank, grabbed Naropa, and started hitting him with his shoe, which, as you know in Indian culture, is among the worst insults you can possibly give. Yes. And Naropa woke up at that moment. And here is the opening of the song that Talopa sang to Naropa at that point. Mahamudra cannot be taught, Naropa. But your devotion to your teacher and the hardships you've met have made you patient in suffering and also wise. Take this to heart, my worthy student. Now, I translated it that way. It's a little freer than most of the other translations, but I translated it that way because can you imagine the warmth that Talopa is feeling for Naropa at that point? It was like layer after layer of love yeah. and devotion. And so, your devotion to your teacher and the hardships you've met have made you patient in suffering and also wise. Take this to heart, my worthy student. And that's what I wanted to communicate. And you can decide whether I did or not. And then it goes on to give Mahamudra instructions. For instance, consider space. What depends on what? Likewise, Mahamudra, it doesn't depend on anything. Don't control. Let go and rest naturally. Let what binds you, let go and freedom is not in doubt. Off he goes, Mahamudra instruction. Yeah, that's a beautiful translation. You can really feel the love that's trying to be communicated there. Yeah, and a friend of mine has asked me to translate a text, a prayer that's also been translated, because she says it's translated, now it just doesn't speak to it. <laughs> she can feel that there's more behind it, so she's asked me to translate it. So that's on my list of things to do. <laughs> I have a question for you, a language question in this regard, which is we have the actual name of this thing we're talking about, which is Vajrayana. Mm -hmm. And the term Vajra I find really, really interesting and also startlingly opaque to Westerners. And of course, it's usually translated as diamond, which it definitely does not mean. Mm-hmm. And my first question is, do you even like this term? And secondly, how would you actually translate it? An earlier title for my book, which I'm not going to use, was Sketches from Thunderbolt Trail. It's not a bad title. Thunderbolt Trail is a translation of Vajra Yana. Mm -hmm. Yana is trail, Vajra is thunderbolt. Now, the Vajra goes back in time, possibly as far as Sumeria. The legend on which it is based in Indian mythology is that there was a titan, I can't remember his name, who is particularly problematic. And the gods were having a difficult time defeating this titan. You know, the war between the titan, eternal war between the titans and the gods. Yes. So... They found the bones of a rishi, a seer, who had been born as a rishi for seven lifetimes. So the quality of virtue in his bones made it extraordinarily powerful. And they fashioned this 
weapon, this Vajra, from it. And it has the quality that it is so powerful that when it is released from one's hands, it goes and strikes whatever it's aimed at and then returns to the hand without being affected itself. Yes. Which makes it a very suitable symbol for mind nature or rikpa or whatever you want to call it. In Norse mythology, this same Vajra becomes Thor's hammer. That's right. But this thunderbolt shows up in Indian and of course in Tibet, because they drew a lot of their mythology from that, also shows up in Zeus and his thunderbolt, and over and over again. So it's a very, very deep and old mythical symbol. I don't try to translate it. But you're using the term thunderbolt, so in other words, the lightning. Yeah. The trouble with lightning in English is it's a flash, a flash of lightning. We've lost the idea that someone holds and wields lightning. Right, and the idea of it being a weapon or the idea of it being indestructible and all those things. And returning and so forth. But you're quite right. In Norse mythology, it shows up as Thor's hammer. Which has all those properties that you just described. Exactly. And it's a lightning god. So to me, it's just so interesting. and It's a fascinating term. And as you're unpacking, its mythological richness is very, very deep. And so... When people are always translating it as diamond or whatever, it's just, (laughs) I get why they do that, but that just doesn't have any of the right symbology, except for perhaps the indestructibility quality. And so you have chosen to simply take it as a term that is not going to be translated. Yeah. For most of the people who are likely to read this book, that's not going to be a problem. And I put that myth in the introduction so that it's there for, for people to relate to. That was another thing about this book, what to include and what not to. (laughs) Well, maybe there's a second volume waiting in the Uh, wings. No. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so to me, that's an interesting term. And again, back to your own experience of this deep and very long-term engagement with this text is what else has come up for you as really being important to point out as a new understanding? Well, another one, and this is going to figure as I do this third draft, the term yidam, meditational deity. Yes. If you try to translate that into Sanskrit, they just say ishtadevata. Ishtavara devi, isn't it? Ishtadevata. Yeah. What does it mean in Sanskrit? It means your chosen deity. Wow. Cool. And you know why? (laughs) Why? Because I feel that the only way to talk about this properly is say, this is your personal deity. Personal is exactly the right mood. And its closest equivalent in Western culture is your personal or patron saint. Patron saint. (laughs) But this is so important because this is your God. It's your God. It's who you pray to at night. (laughs) It's who you pray to when you're in trouble, whatever form of trouble you're in. And we've lost that. Well, first of all, I understand that yidam is the correct term for that, but I have no idea about what that word really means. It's usually described as being composed of two words, yi, which is the word for mind, and dam, which is possibly a transaction of damsik, but more often the word to bind. So it's what you bind your mind to. It's so interesting because that's one way they translate the word yantra. 
Ah, okay. And mantra, yeah. Well, mantra is usually explained as what protects your mind. No, tra is the word protect, so I'm not quite sure how that works. Well, tra can also cognate to Greek tron, and so it means a device. Ah, okay. In any event, the Buddhist tantras, I came to the conclusion, and you can corroborate this or not, they were originally religions in their own right. Yeah, this is a controversial point, but I would completely agree. And as people pursued their spiritual path, they would go and study with one teacher, and he or she would give them that deity. And then they'd go and study with somebody else, and they would get another deity, and the practices associated with that. But probably, when you studied with most teachers, you wouldn't, you know, you might have three or four deities. You wouldn't have like the 10,000 that they have in the Tibetan tradition. And the Tibetans recognized this very clearly. They have an expression. In India, they practiced one deity and saw hundreds. We practice hundreds and see none. <laughs> That's funny. Because the Tibetans took a very transactional approach to it. I want intelligence, so I'll pray to Mandrusri, but I also want compassion, so I'll pray to Chen Rezi. I want to be protected, so I'll pray to Green Tara, but I'd like a long life, so I'll also pray to White Tara. And so on, and so and so they had everything covered. But in the original tantras, you would do all of those with respect to one deity. You'd have a long life practice. You'd have a protecting practice. You'd have a purification practice, all around one deity. And then as these things they evolved, and some practices proved more efficacious than others, and those were the ones that were transmitted from generation to generation. You know, my teacher's teacher did the three year retreat, and. After his three-year retreat, which he did at a relatively young age, he then assumed his duties as tailor of the monastery. Tailor was an important job in a Tibetan monastery because there were all kinds of banners and other ornaments being sewn for decorations, and you know they made lavish use of Chinese brocade and so forth. But after a few years of this, he said, this is a complete waste of time. And he locked himself in one of the monastery's latrines. Now, you've been to India. You can imagine what <laughs> a monastic latrine was like. And he barred the door, and they could not get him out. And he stayed there for seven years. After a while, they shoved food under the door. But that was it. And he prayed to Green Tara. That was his yidam. That was his personal deity. And so one needs to form a very personal relationship and a very powerful relationship with one of these deities. Now people have all kinds of choice, and that in its way becomes its own curse. Yeah. And we are so far removed from having that kind of personal relationship that we don't trust it. And even if we did, we wouldn't know how to do it, et cetera, et cetera. There's all kinds of difficulties we have in this culture with that. And even if we have all of that, then it's very easy to do it as a performative. I was thinking about this today, actually. How do you practice these religions or practices or whatever that we've imported that have come to us from another culture without them being performative or artificial? And the answer that I've come to, and I'd like to hear what you have to say on this, because you have a similar experience. We have to let them grow inside us, I think. What's your thought? There's just some that resonate. Yes. And then when you start feeling that resonance, at least for me, it was about 
reading the stories about that particular deity and going to lots of different temples to the same deity all around. And each one has a different flavor and they're celebrating a different aspect of that deity. But there's kind of the underlying vibe that you get. And it starts to grow a connection inside, which I think is what you're pointing to. But you get a feeling for what that deity means to you anyway. And by interacting with all these different expressions around that deity. It's interesting because as you talk about it and as I think about it, it strikes me that it's very important that this be done in secret and the only person you're doing this with is your teacher. You talk about it. because I think that's the only way to avoid the performative aspect or the artificial aspect. Unpack that for me. There's a danger of conforming to a group. Yes. That's one. There's a danger of display. That's another. And then there's something else. Things take time. And seeds need to be nurtured in the dark. All of those things make perfect sense to me, but especially the fact that it is organic and it's talking about something deep inside yourself that just needs time to take root and blossom. And that can be a long time, right? A long path. And so I see what you mean now. You don't just want to be taking on some kind of image and then performing the thing and have it be utterly hollow. I'm going to say you can't force this. And it's that forced quality that I, I'm almost suspect of. Now, I'm curious if we took it to the other extreme, because sometimes I do, I would be tempted to have someone work with even a non-traditional, non-deity, if it really had deep resonance for them. An example is when I was working in the Hindu context quite a bit, we have Hanuman, the so-called monkey deity, even though he's really a Vanara and so on. And something that really struck me was how little kids relate to Hanuman like we would relate to a cartoon. I mean, it's just a superhero cartoon to a little kid. Later on, it gets really developed into something much richer and deeper, but there's this energy very early on of like, my friend, the superhero Hanuman. And something I've noticed is that for people in our culture and sometimes even other cultures, that particular mood is not in anything we would think of as a deity. But it is there in actual cartoon figures and so on. And so it's very interesting because it almost reminds me of the bifurcation and translation I mentioned where you can go for the literal or you can go for the mood. When I talk to people who are, especially if they're very atheistic, that mood is still available. You just have to be willing to go into other parts of culture to find it. And that has its own issues it brings up. But I'm curious, have you noticed something like that? Well, there's a person here in Santa Rosa who looked me up and said he was looking for a teacher. I said, I'm not teaching, but we go for hikes every few months. And, uh, and we just talk about whatever we want to talk about. And sometimes he'll ask me a question. And it's the only context in which I'm comfortable talking about spiritual matters is one-on-one conversations. No, I find anything else that just 
doesn't feel right to me. And at the end of our last hike, which was a couple of months ago, he said, Ken, I was raised on Karate Kid. I'm looking for that emotional relationship with a teacher. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's along the lines you're suggesting, isn't it? Yes. One particular person that I was working with, they just couldn't think of any positive image of anything, anything in religion or in the deity realm, but even in just like human role models or something, heroes or role models or whatever. But I said, well, what to you is like a loving being that has really good energy that you can really relate to? And he said, Pikachu. <laughs> I'm only slightly familiar with Pikachu, so you're going to have to... Just think of Japanese anime, right? totally ridiculous, but in terms of the cartoon, very powerful, in fact, with lightning bolts, powerful figure. It's a god. That's right. But it's totally in a mundane, profane cartoon, right? And yet he could actually begin, I kid you not, he could really begin practice with Pikachu and really got somewhere with it. I just keep finding this amazing. <laughs> to me, what you're saying speaks to the degree to which people have been alienated from their own culture. It's really sad. It's sad, and it's a very, very deep problem. For me, it's one of the ways I've investigated overcoming it. What can you at least begin to have this kind of internal relationship with something? When I look at it, it has some value. And yet I agree that the fact that it's so hard to even dig down in to find something somewhere that turns out to be a ridiculous cartoon that represents quite a loss. Well... He found something, which was good. One person's definition of hell that I've come across is not being able to appreciate the good in your world. Mm. And there's a saying in the Tibetan tradition, if you see the Karmapa, and Karmapa is the head of the Kamakaju order in Tibet. Yes. If you see the Karmapa, you never see the lower realms. If you live with Karmapa, you never see the higher realms. <laughs> One of the problems we have in our culture is that we've lost our relationship with symbol. And what effectively you were doing is asking him for a symbol. And he had to reach outside American culture for a symbol. Yes, although I should add, and this changes the flavor of it, is this person was raised quite a bit in the States, but also comes from Asia. Okay. Pikachu is an Asian character. Yeah, yeah, that changes it a little bit. But the point here is that we are suspicious of symbols because we always know that there's a story behind the symbol, which is usually less than salubrious. Yes. Again, then I think of a Catholic priest friend of mine. He was over for dinner one night. And I started ragging on him about the Catholic Church's support of Nazi war criminals or how they figured in that after World War II. And he just looked at me and said, this is why I love my church. I said, what do you mean? He said, she's an old bag lady. She's done it all. That's why I love her. And eventually I understood that what he was saying is that, yeah, it's an old institution. It's done an awful lot of harm in the course of its history. And it's still the basis of my faith. And that spoke to me. And we need a faith that comes 
from that kind of depth, if you see what I mean. I do. Do you feel that that's possible with Vajrayana for Westerners? Well, the faith isn't naive and it isn't blind, okay? And I think those are very important aspects. It doesn't gloss things over, it doesn't ignore. And I think like you, it's a case of finding the place in our lives where we can find that kind of faith. Because basically it's an internal place. And if we need to go outside the culture, do it. We need to go outside. And is it possible to do it in Vajrayana? Yeah, definitely. I have my own experience and I also have the experience of many friends and colleagues for whom it it has become a very genuine and deep and fruitful practice. So I don't see that as something that isn't possible. It, It definitely is. But much more important is that whether it has the artificiality, the performative, or all the other things we've discussed here, those same kinds of problems crop up even if it's to something within faith and something within our culture. That genuine faith, which I'm trying to point to, that's the key, not the focus. Every tradition has what I call its repository of faith. In the Zen tradition, or Soto Zen, for instance, it's the posture. Thich Nhat Hanh's tradition, it's the bell. In the Tibetan tradition, it's your teacher or your root guru, root lama. I'm not sure what it is in the Theravadan tradition. I would say in Mahayana tradition or some of the Mahayana traditions is the Bodhisattva vow. Everything revolves around that. Mm-hmm. So there has to be something in which you can always put your faith. And it's not a blind or ignoring or naive faith. Here I'm using faith as a willingness to open to what is there, not the attempt to interpret life according to a belief. I hope that distinction is clear. Yeah, the distinction is very clear. I mean, let's take the book, Wake Up to Your Life. Mm -hmm. Unless I'm totally misreading it, this book does not point to putting your faith in your root teacher. No, that book is not a Vajrayana book. There are Vajrayana elements in it, but it's not about Vajrayana. Mm. It's about the sutra tradition of Tibetan Buddhism. Yes. So do you think whatever Western version of Vajrayana we come up with, we'll need a guru? We'll need that repository of faith in the teacher? It can happen in a lot of different ways. I remember, I think it was when I was getting my MA in mathematics, I ran into another grad student. He was doing algebraic topology, cohomology theory, which is relatively abstract. He said the relationship he had with his graduate supervisor was exactly the relationship that he read about in Vajrayana texts with the guru. There was just this element of transmission taking place all the time as someone who guided him in his mathematics and in a very close and warm relationship and someone he was deeply, deeply grateful to, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Another thing which people tend to overlook, the greatest composers, Beethoven, Bach, Mozart, Brahms, Stravinsky, Debussy, they all had teachers. Teachers were extremely important. Often they weren't known. In fact, someone did a chart of all of the composers in the 18th, 19th, 20th century. And there's a woman, I think in France, a huge number of people studied with and learned composition from her, and nobody knows about her. That's so interesting. No, but if there was ever a person who was 
the composer's teacher, it was this woman. I mean, the, the number of composers who, who through another teacher or something traced back to her. It was just it was so evident in this chart, he points out. And this was a complete surprise. And you would just track down who these different teachers studied with. So lineage and guru, what I say in this book, with a teacher, we need three things. A teacher points out possibilities to us either through pointing out mind or through their own example or through some other means. And there's a teacher that we learn skills and trains us and gives us a sense of discipline and so forth. And then there are teachers who point out our internal material and how it gets in the way and what to do about it. Now, it's possible that all three are in one person, but it's also possible that they're in three different people. And the first one... That can actually be a historical figure. The Korean teacher, Chinul, 12th, 13th century, I believe, one of the very important figures in Korean Zen history, didn't really have a teacher. He went to China and studied and learned meditation, etc. But he didn't have the kind of relationship with the teacher that we often think is absolutely necessary. But we still have to learn from somebody. <laughs> yeah. And most people go off on their own and do their own thing far too early in their spiritual practice. There's real benefit from studying with a person over the course of 5, 10, 15 years because something else happens over that period of time. Yeah, it's very true. And I mean, you can sit and try to teach yourself to play the piano from a book, but... Yeah, that's a very good analogy. Yeah. Sitting down with a real musician week after week after week, or day even day after day, something gets transmitted. There's some kind of real person-to-person -person learning going on. Yeah. And so I think it's important. So anyway, these are the kinds of issues that I've been wrestling with for the last little wow. while. It was difficult. It sounds like the good kind of difficult, Ken. That depends entirely on your point of view, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for sharing your thoughts today. I really have had a great time talking with you, Ken. Well, I've enjoyed it very much. I enjoy our conversations because I think there's enough common ground in our experience. And respect also. We can engage this conversation without being at all concerned with saying something that may be misconstrued. That's just a huge relief in today's world. Indeed. That's it for this episode of Deconstructing Yourself. I'd like to let you know about an upcoming retreat I have available in the first half of 2024. This April, I'll be teaching a six-day residential retreat at Mount Madonna Center in the hills of Northern California. From April 14th to the 19th, I'll be leading practitioners in non-dual meditation techniques, guided meditations, and silent sitting with the group. So if you'd like to spend six days working on deepening your spiritual practice and particularly working on your non-dual meditation with me and a group of interested folks, please consider joining me at Mount Madonna this April. Just go to the deconstructingyourself.com slash events page and follow the links you find there. I look forward to seeing you at the retreat. There will also be a meditation retreat with me coming up this August in Costa Rica. You can find out more about that 
at the same deconstructingyourself.com slash events page. If you enjoyed the podcast, please recommend it to a friend or talk about it on social media. Doing that helps it find its way to more people who might be interested. If you're moved to support the podcast, you can do that by contributing to the production costs on my Patreon page. That's at patreon.com slash Michael Taft. The money goes to support the recording, production, and bandwidth costs of this program, which are substantial. By contributing to Patreon, you're making it possible for me to continue to create and share these conversations as often as possible. A special perk for high-level contributors is a monthly or even bi-monthly event with me on Zoom, where you can ask me any meditation questions you have. I deeply appreciate your support. I also have a number of free resources for you, beginning with my YouTube channel. There are hundreds of hours of free guided meditations and videos there, so if you're interested, that's quite a large resource and offered to you completely free of charge. The channel address on YouTube is MWT111, or you can just search my name, Michael Taft. I encourage you to subscribe to the channel and join me each week for a new live guided meditation session. If you'd like to interact with a broad community of people interested in meditation, particularly those who engage with my YouTube meditations, I have a free Discord server called Deconstruct You. That's Deconstruct and then just the single capital letter U. There are a large number of discussion channels there, and it's free, so hop on the server and introduce yourself. And of course, there's the deconstructingyourself.com website itself, which has articles, interviews, and more about meditation going back over 12 years at this point. So be sure to check that out. Beyond these free options, I also have a number of paid online courses to help you grow and develop in your spiritual practice. You can find out about those either by signing up for my email list at deconstructingyourself.com slash sign up or at the site deconstructingyourself.org. I look forward to seeing you in class. The Deconstructing Yourself podcast has always had excellent sound, which is the result of an amazing audio engineer and amazing human being named Stephen McNamara. He's an all-things audio person with many decades of experience in producing music and spoken word audio. If you're interested, you can contact him at his website, yogitar.com. That's Y-O-G-I-T-A-R dot com. Music on the Deconstructing Yourself podcast is a track by Peter Bauman entitled Crossing the Abyss from his album Machines of Desire. Thank you for listening.